You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Eric Rogel, and this is Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. And today, I've got another great, real story of the journey to modern manhood told by the man who lived that story. Trust me, this man has lived a very interesting and inspiring life. His name is Andre Norman, and Andre is an internationally known speaker, and he's also, in his words, an ambassador of hope to thousands of men. Now, most of those men are in prison. And Andre knows that world well, uh, the prison world, through a uh, series of events and decisions that he made. Andre was sent to prison at age 18, and due to his actions inside, his sentence eventually stretched to more than 100 years. Now, most people would have resigned themselves to a life of incarceration, a life of surrendered freedoms behind steel bars. But not Andre. He had an improbable dream. He had a goal that he set for himself, and that goal was to go to Harvard University. And it's a goal that Andre achieved against daunting odds. And, and, and now he's dedicated his life to helping others who find themselves in the same situation he was once in. It's an incredibly inspiring story, especially for any of us who have ever faced Uh, incredible odds or a really insurmountable challenge and just felt like giving up, felt like there was no way that we could prevail. So Andre is proof that we can achieve anything we put our mind to. Now, before I get to my interview with Andre, before you hear his story of how he went from, as he puts it, from the prison yard to Harvard yard, I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me. And here's what that is. I would like for you to send this episode to someone that you know who will get value out of it. Now, it may be someone who's at a crossroads in their life. They may, they may be at the point where a critical decision needs to be made. Or they may be feeling the effects of a decision they've already made that's had uh, some unforeseen or, or negative consequences. Or maybe they just love hearing stories of people who are able to overcome incredible odds. Doesn't matter. The point is just to send them this link. And that's for two reasons. The first reason is it'll have a huge impact on their life. And especially with everything going on right now out there, um, it can inspire them and help move them forward. A lot of people are facing their own challenges and some are on the verge of, of giving up. This can help move them forward. Second, it helps me. Now, as you know, and I mentioned this before, I don't do advertising on the show. I like to keep it just the conversations between me and my guests without interruption. So my only goal with this show is to reach as many people as possible. And so I'm challenging you to be part of that, to do what you can do to get this into people's hands and get it into their ears. So spread it around. And I promise you guys, they're going to thank you for it because I love hearing the stories you guys tell me about the feedback that you get after sharing this with someone. So keep that up. Keep us all moving forward. And as always... I absolutely appreciate you for stepping up and doing that because that's the whole purpose of why we're here. 
So now let's get to Andre and get to his story. I asked him to start with how he grew up, what, what his childhood was like, and how he got on the path that led him to prison. Well, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and my mom had six kids, and she went through first husband going to prison, my second dad kind of being abusive. So she ended up six, single mom with six kids, but bouncing around. Um, I go to a new school. They find out in the third grade that I'm illiterate. So they put me in a thing called the dummy class for the kids who can't read and write. They just kind of put us over there. They call it the school to prison pipeline now. Back then, it was just called the dummy class. Wow. Um, luckily for me, a teacher intervened, and she taught me my learning style because I learned differently than other kids. I didn't learn like the write it on the board and recite it type stuff. But she took interest in me. She helped me out. Shout out to Miss Oliver. And by middle school, I realized that I was poor. In elementary school, we just play every day. Nobody cared about anything. What right. you had on, what you didn't have on. Middle school is all about titles and tags and brand names, of which I had none. Well, so I want to ask you one question. I want to jump back to the, 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 um, the dummy class thing for a minute. because So that was a label they threw on you early, right? You didn't learn the way they thought you should learn. And so they're telling you you're a dummy, you're in the dummy class. And that gets into your head there for a little while, doesn't it? See, what happens is they give you a test. Well, you go into a classroom, the teachers teach. There's mm -hmm. 30 kids in the class, 35 kids. The teacher goes to the board, A, B, C, one, two, three, whatever she writes. And 95% of the room can interpret it and learn it that way. And it's those of us who just straight over my head. I didn't, inter I didn't ingest it. I learned later on that I'm the type of person, I got to feel it. I can't just hear it. And she wasn't making me feel it. But 95% in the room responds to just hearing it. So she speaks the way she was taught, not her fault, to teach, speak to people who hear you. I couldn't hear the words because there was no connectivity. I didn't understand at six years old I needed connectivity. I just didn't get it. And then when I got work assignments, you know what my problem was? I finished them too fast. I would go zoom because I'm like super, super hyper. I would do the work so fast. Now I'm She's expecting, here's a worksheet. It's going to take you 35 minutes, and she can go sit down. I'm done in seven minutes. That's a problem. Because <laughs> now I've got 28 minutes, and ain't nothing to do. So what do I do? I get in trouble. So right. all this culminated into me being like, people say now, Dre, you're so smart. You're so talented. You're quick. You're, I was that in sixth grade, but they didn't have a class for me then. So right. I ended up failing classes or not doing well in classes, not because I wasn't intelligent, but because I couldn't fit into the mold of the rest of the majority of the kids. Right. And then they hit you with that label. And then like you were saying, I'm going to let you continue. So you get into middle school and you didn't know that you were poor. So tell me about that. Poverty is when you're in middle elementary school, merry-go-round, hide and go seek. You just eat lunch in middle school. You have to sign up for free lunch. It's not just given. Elementary is just given. Or maybe my mom signed up. I didn't know it. In middle school, you have to wear certain clothes. You have to look a certain way. You have to do your hair every day. You have to take showers every day. Nobody taught me this stuff. You know what I'm saying? So I come to school smelling like yesterday's football game with yesterday's socks on with not the right clothes. And I, it's normal for me. The other kids are like, oh, he's dusty. He's dirty. He's this. He's that. And it was just like, I'm like, what's the big deal? Or the big deal in middle school is you have to have brand name stuff and look a certain way. And I didn't. And kids made fun of me every single day. So finally, a friend of mine said, hey, Dre, 
we were too poor once we figured out what we needed to be accepted for our parents to buy it. So we went to the park after school and started selling weed. Well, we didn't really sell weed. We became runners for the weed sellers. Like we little kids run to the stash and run back. And we make 40, 50 bucks a day, which was enough to buy the things that we needed to be accepted. We were still poor, but we projected as we were doing okay. And that seems to be a thing in black culture. You can be poor living in the projects and have a Mercedes Benz outside. That goes all the way back to when we went elementary school and middle school where we just projected that we looked okay. So it was just a part of fitting in was having the right shoes, the right clothes, the right look, the right everything. Exactly. And it was, it, it, granted, it played itself out in my space because I was poor and I needed certain things. But rich people need it too. You need the Volvo. You need the kid to go to the right private school. You need to have this. You need to go to the right church. And if you don't do those things, people look at you like, oh, you're not acceptable. So it plays out in every culture. But in the poverty culture, it plays out similar, just different. And I was on the, I was on the wrong end of it. Right. And when you say wrong end of it, so the, the, you know, the only way when you're in middle school for you to get the money in order to have these things that you needed to be accepted in the culture was to be a runner for the, for the guys selling drugs. Right. Now, even though I wasn't like a heavy criminal, a heavy drug dealer, anything like that, but what happened when I made that move was I put myself on the wrong track. I am now on a track of criminality. I might be way, way, way at the beginning stages or even before it, but I'm on that track. And as I got older, I moved further down the track and the tool started picking up steam and it ran me from that little runner job straight to the penitentiary. Because that's the only place that track goes. That track doesn't go to college. That track doesn't go to the service. That track doesn't go anyplace else. So when I put myself on a criminality track, criminals at some point go to prison. Regardless of where you started, that's the end for everybody. And I ended up with all the other... Now, some people started further down the line than me or different reasons than me. But the baseline is I put myself on the wrong track. Yeah, and there were some decisions that you made along that way, too, that you and I had spoken about previously. And one of them was uh, you were a hell of a trumpet player, right? And that was one of a, like a passion of yours that you ended up, well, I'll let you tell the story about what happened with you and the trumpet. Oh, in the sixth grade, back in that time, we didn't have all this extracurricular stuff. So teachers, everybody was in a band. It was just one of those things. We used to say, pledge allegiance in school, and we were in the band. And the teacher gave me a trumpet. Just so you know, I'm not, I'm a trumpet guy. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. keep my, I keep my logos around. Yeah. But um, the baseline is I played trumpet sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And lo and behold, I got really good at it. It was something I was really good at. And so I got to the eighth grade, ready to go to high school. Miss Ellis, my music teacher said, hey, I'm signing you up for the magnet school for high school. And I'm like, why are you doing that? She said, you have a gift. And she decided I should go to the magnet school. So I go to the magnet school, high school. And when I got there, I went to the band. It was a room full of nerds. And all the nerd kids were in there, and I didn't really get a I played trumpet. They accepted me, but I didn't really accept them because I didn't want to be classified as a nerd, even though I technically was. But in the afternoon, I hung out with the tough guys. So nerds in the morning in band, tough guys in the afternoon, cutting class, getting in trouble. And eventually, my afternoon friends challenged my trumpet. And they were like, yo, it's stupid. You shouldn't play it. It's a waste of time. You can't go anywhere with it. If you're going to be with us, you need to get rid of that thing. So not wanting to lose my friends, I got rid of the trumpet. 
And so another decision that led you down a track. The thing about giving up the trumpet is more than just giving up the trumpet. Growing up poor is horrible, but people have done it and made it. Growing up without a dad is horrible. People have done it and made it. Growing up in adverse circumstances is horrible. People have done it and made it. Nobody grows up and becomes successful without a dream. So I gave up my dream that day I chose my friends off my trumpet. So once I didn't have a dream, I just became a drifter. And I just drifted around until I found, again, I'm on the track of criminality. So the one thing that kept me out of trouble was going to band. I never got in trouble in band. Just like athletes, they never got in trouble while they were at practice or at a game. For me, it was band and recitals. And when I gave that up, I just drifted into the street full-time or more to the point, again, I'm on that track and I'm moving down that line. Now I'm getting arrested at ninth grade. I'm getting arrested in 10th grade. I'm getting arrested and arrested in the point. The judge had enough. The judge is like, okay, you're not listening. It's time for you to go away. And they sent me to state prison. How old were you when you went, when you got sent away? 18. Oh, so it was right as you became an adult. That was when they said, we've had enough. And then it was time to go. Time to go. Well, you know something? It's time to go where you've been on track to go since the third grade. You just didn't know you were going. See, they have a thing where they build prison cells based on third grade math and science skills. If you fail third grade math and science as a young kid, it, the odds are you're going to fail high school. So if you have 100 kids who fail math and science, by the time they're in the 12th grade, they probably dropped out. So now you have 100 kids who are in the street with no education, no skills, and no job. Of that 100, let's say half will turn to criminality. And of that 50, 10 will die, 40 will go to jail. So you have 10 dead people and 40 people in prison. So the state knows, based on third grade math scores, build 40 prison cells. For every 100, whatever the math is exactly, don't quote me, whatever it is, they know exactly how many cells to build every year based on, based on the third grade math and science scores. So my third grade math and science scores were bad, so they built a cell for me that day. I just didn't know it. Wow, man, that's, that's profound. And it also goes toward what you said when you were in the dummy class, you said they called it the prison pipeline. And that, there's a truth to that, right? Because it is based on these statistics that they know how many are gonna end up in the system. If you went to a state prison of your choice, go to any state prison or any county jail in America and go in and say, okay, there's 100% of the population. What percentage went to public school? Immense, if not all, almost all. What percentage dropped out of public school? If not all, almost all. So it's, it's a thing that everybody turns it, I don't know why, but if you knew in the third grade that I was gonna go to prison by 12th grade, that means you had eight years to redirect me. Mm-hmm. Nine years, nobody tried to redirect. I mean, I'm not saying nobody tried, but the state doesn't have a mechanism in place to redirect. They just accept what is. Sure. Yeah, and and if you look at what got you there, it was the peer pressure, it was the poverty, it was the need for the status, need for acceptance that put you on that track. I mean, trying to fit in, I mean, you have rich kids who try to fit in. So you have rich, I went to a rich white school and I spoke, they do drugs, they drink, they have bullies, they have dummy classes, and they have a lot of the same problems. The only difference is their parents can pay for them to go to treatment or societies want to give them a second chance or not to take a chance on them. Whereas, uh, he can go away. My mom can't show up 
with a high-priced lawyer. She can't pay a high price. So me and you right now mm -hmm. did the same exact crime. We got the same exact bail. You can afford 100000 to get out. I can't. You, you know somebody if they can get you a, a really good lawyer. I can't. So you're on the street with a great lawyer going to court. To court. I'm in a jail cell going with a public defender. When we finally show up to court, you come in with a suit and your lawyer, I come in an orange jumpsuit and chains. Your lawyer has prepared above and beyond for your case. My lawyer has 400 other cases and he's not, he's too busy. Money determines where you place in this country. And if you go to jail, jail is not for criminals, jail is for poor people. Hmm. Occasionally, rich people will go. But for the most part, jail is for poor people. Yeah, and I'm really feeling the, um, the labeling all the way down the line, Andre, you know, like labeled as a dummy and put in the dummy class, labeled as poor, labeled as this, labeled as that, leading you all the way down this line to where you ended up. So um, now you're in prison, right? You're 18, you're in prison. Tell me about that. Well, I'm scared to death. How's that? <laughs> I'm smart. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm smart enough to know I need to be scared. But what happened in my first day of prison, it was the worst day slash best day. The worst day was, all, I was scared, but it was a reunion of all my friends from the dummy class. Melvin was there, Thaddeus was there. All my kids who sold drugs in the park were there. You know I'm saying all the guys who got kicked out of class or kicked out of school, who quit the football team, who quit band, who quit this leadership. Prison, what I found was a reunion of all the people who quit on stuff along the way. I'd love to be able to say, I didn't have a dad, I lived in the hood, it was hard for me. But at the same time, there were people who tried to reach out and connect, but I had this thing about quitting. I quit everything. I quit band, I quit track, I quit leadership, I quit exchange, I quit everything. And that was something I was taught to do at a young age. I didn't understand it, but I did it well. And a lot of other kids were taught the same thing. You don't matter, it doesn't matter, just quit. And that's the worst attitude to have because we have a building full of quitters and nobody has achieved or followed through on anything successful. And when you quit on all the positives, it only leaves you negatives. So first day, it was a reunion of all those folks. We were all like-spirited, white, black, or Spanish. I knew a lot of them. And then the, the best thing was I knew all of them. The worst thing was I, I fit in so good, I wasn't thinking about going home. I just went into the culture. And for six years, I just participated and hung out with my buddies. I mean, I might as well back in middle school. We're just hanging out, having fun. It's yeah. crazy that sounds. Yeah, it does, it does sound a little bit crazy too. But what, what I like about what you're saying on the, on the quitting end is there's some ownership there, right? I mean, not falling into the victim. And that's, I get that from you and in a lot of our conversations. There's a lot of ownership, personal responsibility for the things that, that happened and not falling into the victim. Things were done to me. So... Yeah, I'm really feeling that. But then you participated for six years, and then what happens in prison? Relative to the victim thing, yeah, is is life fair? No, is life fair? Period. Is life fair across the board? No, mm. it's not fair across the board for everybody. Then is it fair for black people? Doubly no. <laughs> so the criminal justice system is not fair for black people. Being pulled over on a, you get pulled over by a cop, I get pulled over by a cop. It's two different scenarios. You, look, you buy a house in a certain neighborhood, I buy a house in the same neighborhood, two different scenarios. I go skiing, you go skiing, two different trips. So not fair is just baseline. 
I'm saying now, what do we do about that? How do we overcome that? How do we change the norms to something different? So when I say it's not fair, it's not your fault, but it's just not fair. <laughs> so back in the days, I'm a Patriot fan. We beat everybody. It just wasn't fair. I mean, it, it's unfair that the Jets just suck. I mean, they've sucked for like <laughs> since 1972. It's yeah. just not fair. They have all the same opportunities as everybody else, but it's called bad management. So they just been irrelevant for like 50 years now. It's just horrible. So for me, life is just not fair. I feel like the Jets, where we just, it's not working out. No matter what happens, somehow it goes bad. And it's not been fair. And I'm in here, and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going along with the it's not fair. People play for the Jets, and they show up to work every day for some reason because it's their job. Well, I showed up to play this bad hand every day. And I showed up, and I played my bad hand, and we just kept losing. And finally, I said, I'm tired of losing. And the only way, Joe Pollard says this, the best way to win some games is to not play. Sometimes you just have to stop playing the game. I kept trying to get better at being a loser instead of saying, this is me get up from this table. So after six years of playing the same hand, I said, you know something? I'm going to do what Darrell Reeves did. I'm going to trade myself to the Patriots. <laughs> I'm going to get a ring. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what Kevin Durant did. I'm going to Golden State. I'm going to get a ring. So I'm saying, so I'm going to do what Anthony Davis did. I'm going to go to the Lakers. I'm going to get a ring. I said, I'm going to get off this losing table. I'm going to go to the table where they win. I'm playing at a losing table, period. So I said, let me go to a team that wins. So I said, I pick a new team. The team I picked was Harvard University. I said, I want to be on the Harvard team. They're winners. And everybody said, you can't get on the Harvard team. And they gave me, I'm black, I'm uneducated, I'm a gang member, I'm a SAG, I'm violent. I said, nah, man, I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to join the Harvard team. I'm going to be a winner. And I started down that, on that track. The same way I started on a track of being near drug dealers, which put me on the wrong track, I got on the right track, even though I was the outside favorite, outside dark horse of this doesn't make sense. But I got on a track of going to Harvard. And it took me 25 years. But guess what? I made it to Harvard. Made it to Harvard. What, what made you make that decision, Dre? I mean, because that, that's a tough decision. You and I talked about this. And, and you were climbing up the ranks in the, in the prison gangs, right? And um, you had done some things to get yourself in that position. And you were about to do some more things to take over the number one spot. And I want you to tell that story here in a second. But I also want you to tell it from the decision that you made to get on this Harvard team and, and what that took. Because just like when you gave up on the trumpet, gave up on that dream because of the pressure you were getting from your friends, had to be even more pressure when you're in the prison system. Well, I'm on this losing team for the most part. That doesn't mean the people are bad because I'm one of them. We just, we're playing a losing hand. That's it. We are playing a losing hand. You are guaranteed to lose playing the hand of criminal in a criminal institution. You're not gonna win. There's no win to that. If you make a bunch of money, if you get status, if you get, you're still losing because you're locked inside of a cell. You can't see your family. You don't have your freedoms. You really can't create anything special. You can't, you can't have, you, you're, you're losing. It's like, so this, the question is, can I look good losing? So back in the sixth grade, can I look good being poor? If I can put on these clothes, they don't make me look good being poor and I'm accepted. So in the prison system, I'm trying to look good losing. 
that's by getting status and getting ranked and being involved in a bunch of stuff. So it came time to say, okay, I realized I'm at a losing table and I'm on a losing team. So I said, okay, how do I switch? So I looked around, I said, okay, well, where are the winners coming from? The winners are coming from college. We've heard this since we were kids, go to college, start a life. So it's like, ding, ding, ding. I need to go to college and start a life. So I had to pick a school. At the time I picked Harvard, it's the only school I knew the name of. I'm <laughs> from Boston, it was right down the street. So I picked the school I knew the name of and I said, I'm going there. And I said, that's my new track. I'm on the track to Harvard. Now I started in the sixth grade and it took me six years to get to prison. I started at like 11 and like 18, I went to prison. So like eight years it took me to get to prison. I started on this track, it took me eight years to get out of prison. Hmm. Once I started down that track, I started walking in the direction of Harvard. When I was in the sixth grade, I started walking in the direction of prison and I made it. So in 91, I started walking in the direction of Harvard and in 2016, I got there. Fantastic, man. And you know, you were a long shot to do that because you were sentenced to how many years was your sentence? My sentence totaled 105 years, but I should have did 28. And you ended up doing how many? 14. And you got yourself out how? I t once I, I had to tell myself the truth. When I said I wanted to do something different, first thing, the reason I'm not successful is me. It's not the guy in the cell next door. It's not the God. It's not my mom. It's Andre. Andre is the reason Andre's in his cell. Andre's going to be the reason he goes to another place. So I had to do an assessment of myself. So I came up with this great assessment tool, which I still use. I'm black. I'm uneducated. I'm violent. I have no patience. I can't read that well. I got a knife in my cell. I mean, I'm a gang member. I, all this stuff. I don't have a high school diploma. I just made the list. I'm a quitter. When I made my list, the key thing that I found was that I was a quitter. Because had I not discovered that, I'd have went down this path and at some point quit. So the first thing that I had to address was my ability to quit. Yeah. I had a propensity to, propensity to quit. And sometimes, People build a machine. This is a Keith Cunningham quote. They mm. build a machine for the problem that's not. My problem wasn't being black. My problem wasn't being a criminal. My positive problem wasn't being poor. My problem was I was a quitter. So if I don't fix this quitter thing, no matter who comes, whatever opportunity, I'm going to quit at some point. I fixed the quitter thing first. Then I started working on the other stuff. Yeah, you know what that brings up, Andre, is, you know, we have the, the sacred seven core values that I always talk about on the show. And you getting to that, digging deep and looking at the quitter, I mean, that, the first two of the, of the um, core values are courage and honesty. And, and, and to look deep like you just did, make that list, took an incredible amount of courage and honesty to do that, and then to take ownership of I am a quitter. And that was the, seems like that's the thing that really got you on the right track and moving forward. Yeah. When you say courage and, and fortitude, for me, when I was in the sixth grade, I just don't want to be made fun of. I don't want to be a drug dealer to be cool. I want to be a drug dealer so I didn't be made fun of. So when I made this decision, I'm like, I'm being courageous. I'm like, no, what? this is necessity. Poverty breeds desperation. <laughs> and it breeds invention. I'm saying you have to be creative when you're poor. Mm -hmm. My mother made some of the best dishes out of nothing. <laughs> I mean, and it tastes so good. I mean, we used to make... Pizza. You know what pizza was for me? A slice of bread, some ketchup, and a slice of cheese in the oven for seven minutes. 
We sprinkled some oregano on top. We called that pizza. You couldn't tell me I wasn't eating pizza when I was in middle school. Yo, pizza, bang, I got you. Kids would come by my house, drink, make us some pizza. And I'd put bread, ketchup, and a slice of cheese and some oregano, and we was off and running. Off and running. So when I made the decision, I wasn't thinking I'm courageous. It wasn't some big speech. It's like, like I've always had to do from nothing to create something. And Got it. But, but that does take courage. I'm, I'm going to give you that on there just for you because that does take courage. So there are so many men, Andre, think about this, that, that don't have the courage to take a look at themselves and really make those tough decisions. And, uh, and, and you did that. And the courage to be honest and all of that. So um, I'm giving you the kudos on that one because hey. it did take a lot of it. It did take a lot to get that. And especially, look, at the time, and again, you and I spoke about this before, you're in the prison system. You're the number three guy, I believe you told me, right? In the, in the whole yeah. prison system, right? Yeah. And you were strategizing how to be number one yeah. in the system. So tell me, tell you know, guys that are listening right now, because I really want to set the stage for how important this was that you're in the system, you're locked up, you had 100 plus years that you're sentenced to, and you're about to do something to make yourself number one. And that's when you had the change of heart. So tell that story. Well, I'm in segregation because I had gotten to a scenario where I got convicted of two attempted murders. So I'm in solitary. And while I'm in solitary, I had some friends of mine had gotten hurt. And I was going to retaliate against the gang that attacked my friends. And once I retaliated against this gang, it had propelled me by starting this beef to another status, which I've been trying to get to, which is a top status. In prison, as far as ranking, it's all about who you beat and what you did. So Mike Tyson, when he started fighting, he was nobody. But he had to beat everybody in front of him until he got to Trevor Burbick. Then once he beat Trevor Burbick, he became champion. Not, now, we knew he was going to become, so it was obvious, but he still had to beat the people. And I'm on that path of beating the people and being involved in these battles. And I just came, it's like, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Every, Dorothy and her three troops, the Scarecrow, the Lion, and the Ten Men come to, come to Oz, and Oz, everybody's cool. We accept that there's a wizard, and this is how the world works. And she's like, I need to see the wizard because I want to get someplace else. I wanted to see the wizard because I wanted to be the wizard. So I ran down the yellow brick road. I make it to the castle. I get there, and the, the wizard's thing there. I pull the curtain, and it's all fake. Solid guy but living the wrong life. He's, on, he's at the end of a bad track. Mm -hmm. And I was about to jump in that chair is what I've been fighting for, but this is the thing I tell people. I wanted to see the wizard. The rest of Oz was content with the way things were. They would just say, hey, this works for me, so I got this job, I got this wedding, I got this marriage, I got these kids, I got this boat, I got, I'm good, I don't wanna go anymore. I wanted more, which is what pressed me to go see the wizard. And when I got there, it was all, all nothing. And I said, I don't want to be, I'm the king of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I'm about to be the king of nowhere. And the Wizard of Oz was the king of nowhere. And I was about to take that job. And I said, no. Right there in that moment, you said that was the decision made. This is not where I need to be. It was, no, something. Dorothy had so much belief in the wizard until she met him. And she was like, wait a minute, this is dumb. You're, you can't get me what I want. You can't deliver me the thing I really want to be. It was all make-believe. Then she, she looked around and started saying, 
it's been in us the whole time. So you knew that in you, that you had far beyond what you thought was the wizard, what you thought was the leader in this prison system. You knew you had way more than that in your life, and that's when you got back on the track. I didn't realize it was until you get there. Until I got there, then I was like, wait a minute. I've been fighting. I gave up my family. I gave up my freedom. I gave up all possibilities of a great career. I gave up a lot of stuff to do this. Now, imagine if Dorothy and the Kareem team would have figured it out day one, we don't need the wizard. It's in us. She didn't have been no movie. <laughs> she didn't just turn around. The movie happened because she didn't believe in herself initially. Yeah. This movie happened because I didn't believe in myself. And I needed to walk through all these same different scenes and scenarios to finally get to the castle to realize it was fake. There's a lot of people who are okay with fake and contentment, but I wasn't. There's a lot of people who still live in Oz, and they're okay with that. Yeah, and it's part of your journey, right? You know, that's the, the classic hero's journey, Dre, right? Going through all those yeah. challenges, taking that journey to get to that realization and become, you know, the hero and get where you are now. So now, you know, you've got this new dream going to Harvard. You're in prison. You're in segregation. Uh, you know, you're running things, basically. What do you have to do to turn all of that around? And what's the reaction like from the guys that are around you in prison? Are they well, talking you out of it? Are they, you know, uh, behind you in this? What, what, what's, the, what's going on? Again, the best thing, the worst thing happened that next day. I figured out what I wanted to do. Go home and join the Harvard team and be a winner. I came out myself. I told everybody the deal. This is a new plan. Going home, going to Harvard, going to be a winner. They looked at me like I was crazy. And they started telling me all the reasons I couldn't go. You're black, and you're black, you're this, you're poor, you're criminal. All I heard, truth, was my friends in the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. It mm -hmm. came right back to me. Yep. All my friends in the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. And I was like, not again, buddy. So I walked past them. I called my parents. They didn't believe me. So the worst thing was, I was on my own. Then the best thing was, I was on my own. Right, it was you and you. You had to rely on you, yeah. Not only that, had my friends told me, Dre, that's a great idea. We'll go with you. The odds of one person coming from Max Security Prison to Harvard is like one in a 10 million. The odds of 20 of us going is, even, is, is, is not, even, not even a number for that. So the fact that they didn't go made me have to go by myself. And the fact that I had to do it by myself is the reason I made it. Yeah, because you were relying solely on you. There was no yeah, more peer pressure, no more. No, yeah. What's I would that? I'd take the whole prison with me if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I go back and try to take them still. Yeah. Well, I know, I know. That's what you're working on now. So, so you get out, right? So it takes you eight years to get out of prison, right? You get your sentence, I'm assuming. So, what happens with your sentence since you got all I these? I case on appeal, which took 10 years off. And I got to earn a lot of good credits and good time for designing programs, going to school and doing the good guy stuff. And I got a parole. So I got out early on parole, plus I reversed the sentence. So I got out in 14 years. Fantastic. And what's the first thing you do when you get out? Go to the parole office and sign in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Then what's the next thing you do once you get out? I left the parole office. I went to a juvenile detention center, and I talked to a lot of little young black boys about why they were in juvie and why they were going to prison. And it wasn't because they were black. It wasn't because they smoked or sold weed. They were in trouble because people let them down. They didn't know how to process it, so they acted out. And it's called trauma 
and they didn't know how to process that trauma, so they acted out. At eight and nine, it was cute. At 13 and 14, it's criminal. So I started teaching trauma-informed care on how they can repair themselves and learn how to process. You can't change your parents. You can't change your neighborhood at that age, but you can change how you process what's coming to you, what's happening through you. So when you think it's happening to you, you react. If it's happening through you, you can respond. So the, the combative part we had to take out, and I started working with little black boys 90 minutes after I got out. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're immediately giving back as soon as you're out of prison. What happened is I used to sit in those rooms. I was that little 13, 14-year-old kid who didn't understand why I was so angry or why I was acting out the way I did. Nobody told me the things that I witnessed and the things that I've been through were trauma. Trauma was a foreign word to me. So I didn't know what trauma was, meant. It was just like, I, I'm supposed to hit you. <laughs> I'm supposed to do this. No, you're not. I had a, had a session, because I run a prison program now. There was a guy in my program, love him to death. He's one of the toughest guys in the system. He's been fighting for years. He has over 20 years in, flat out warrior. And we're in session, and he's talking. And he's talking about how he beat people up because he had to because they hit him first or threatened him and bang, bang. And his dad taught him that you always hit first. Never let anybody hit you first and all this whole scenario. And if you beat him, beat him well. I remember the lesson because I had it. And I said, brother, your dad was wrong. Whole room was like, hold up. He didn't just tell that man that. You know who he's talking to. I'm like, your dad was wrong. And he looked at me. He had based his whole life on this one lesson from his father that he didn't understand was derailing his life. The same way I thought quitting was okay, he thought beating people up was okay. I said, bro, your dad was wrong. You shouldn't hit people. He I said, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. What he taught you was wrong. Let me teach you something different. How and was he with that? I mean, did he, did he accept that right away? Did he, did he argue with you? What was the... It made sense. I mean, you're sitting in prison 20 right. years in, and it's like, nobody's ever told me this. It sounds basic. But when and people, the evidence is all around him, right? The evidence is there that this was wrong, and no one's ever told him. If your dad teaches you something, what's your favorite color? Me, personally? Yeah. I like uh, a nice navy blue. You're wrong. Mm. Yeah. You were taught, you came up somewhere along the line, navy blue is your favorite color. Me telling you, you're wrong. How do I do that? It, 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 you've embedded navy blue is your favorite color. It happens to be mine too, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So when you're yeah. taught something from your parents, from birth to 15, 16, you internalize it. You, what's your name? Eric. Why is your name Eric? Because that's well, what your parents. Yeah, that's it's a name they chose for me. What if yeah. I told you it was adopted your real name is Steven? Yeah, it blows everything out. How easy could you get rid of the Eric? It's going to take a little bit. But you're adopted and your real name is Steven. Well, yeah, I mean, that's coming in now. So now i got I conflict going on. Paperwork and hand you the paperwork of the adoption papers saying your real name is Steven. You'll be like, but you're still going to respond to Eric. You know why? Mm -hmm. You've been told that for 50 plus years. Yeah. And it's the same thing with attitudes and behaviors and beliefs. It's not as simple as, here's the facts. So we had to just first give them the facts. It's going to be a culture shock. Then we walk him through the culture shock and down the path to a better life. Where is he now? He's still there, but he's a whole better person.
Yeah. Which is the key, right? I mean, get him on that track to, you know, exactly. At least get himself out one day as well. So, you know, you know, get out, but everybody can be better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Live a better life, right? Live more of a life of purpose. My goal is to help people be better. That's my goal. If you have, if you got 10 life sentences, you can still be better. If you're on death row, you can still be better. If you got three months left, you can still be better. My goal is to make things, people and processes better. And so, you know, you're a mentor to these guys and showing them the better way. You're an example of it being better and being a better way. And, you know, when you and I had spoken before, uh, you told me about some of the mentors that you've had in your life. And you've got a number of mentors. And some of them are really fascinating men that, that have really kind of helped you in your life. So tell us a little bit about how important they've been in your life and in getting you back on the right track. I mean, I like to believe nobody does it alone. You don't get to this planet alone. Two people got together and they produce you. Then a doctor or somebody showed up and helped you show up. Then... People created baby food. It's like a lot of things that happen to get you to where you are. Teachers help you learn how to read, write, and count, hopefully. Somebody teaches you sports or some kind of art. People help you become you. We had a lot of early mentors. We just didn't call them that. We call them role models or just people, teachers. Teachers are the best mentors. So when I decided and got on a track to change my life, I had mentors in the negative world, too, by me. Then the first mentor I ran into was the Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Natan Schaefer. And mm -hmm. he just, we, we connected. It wasn't about me joining a religion or him becoming black. He was just a teacher. I was a student. And he started teaching me. And he taught me things that I hadn't learned before. How and old were you at this point when you met him? I was 36. No, 30, 26. Okay. 26 when I met him, 27. And he started teaching me forgiveness, accountability, responsibility, helping others, I'm saying charity. And, and I'm saying community service, I'm saying servant leadership, stuff I'd never been taught before. And then after him, I got two nuns. And after <laughs> two nuns, I got a um, Catholic priest. After the Catholic priest, I got a Baptist um, minister. After the Baptist minister, I had a Catholic volunteer. And after him, I mean, those are my early on mentors. And my thing is, you can have more than one. Some people believe you want, this isn't best friend, these are mentors. You can have as many mentors as you want. That's at least my belief. Mm -hmm. And as I meet people, I, if, you're, if you can help me be a better person, I want you in my life. And why would I ever want to get rid of you? Because I met somebody else? No. I'm going to keep you in my life. So I, I literally now have over 40, 50 mentors. Without even, that's easy now. And I just kept meeting people who fit that role. Some females, some males, some white, some black, some Asian, some Latinos, some even younger than me. But there were people who could teach me how to be better. And I'm either you're gonna be a student or you're gonna crash and burn on your own. I'm not into trial and failure if somebody's already knows it and done it. So I started in just collecting mentors. And I still do this day. And they've helped me immensely. Helped me immensely. I was working in Kentucky and the governor and the public safety staff were gonna give me a prisoner run. I went from gang leader to prison warden. This was like the greatest. I was like, oh my God, I've arrived. <laughs> Full this, circle, like, right? Yeah. 60 minutes, 2020, Oprah Winfrey, prison gang leader to prison warden. Never happened in the country. I go see my mentor and I say, yo, Ben, I tell him the story. And when he finished listening to me, 
He heard the Oprah, the 60 Minutes, the New York Times, the book, the story, everything. He said, Donald, you can't be the warden. I'm like, no, 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 man. And I went through it again. He said, okay, Andre, you can't be the warden. I said, you don't get it, man. You really don't understand. This is prison leader to prison leader, never been done in America, never been done in the world probably. I'm the first, this is great. He listened to me. He said, Andre, you can't be the warden. Then I said, okay, why not? He said, Andre, 90% of what a warden does is meetings, 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 and meetings. That's not what you want to do. What you want to do is go in and talk to people and engage people and encourage people and inspire people. Technically, that's not the warden's job. There's an associate warden, a director of programs. That's not the warden. The warden goes to meetings all day, majority of the day, and he has people on his staff that do the thing that you like to do. So once you sign up and agree to be a warden, you're going to find yourself in meetings 60 hours a week and be bored to death. So don't sign up for the warden. You need to like scratch that, take the 10% of what you do that they want, put that in the training, then offer that. That is scalable, is doable, and it fits who you are. You know something? I said, Ben, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Saves you a lot of time and aggravation just having that man in your life. Oh, man, I decided to be the warden and been miserable two weeks in. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't fully understand. I heard what I wanted to hear, which is classic. And But my mentor, who I trust, love, and believe in, was able to let me vent, let me talk, even tell him he was wrong, let me go through my cycle, and say to me, no, 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 then explain his no. Now, if I would have still went and done it, he still would have loved me and helped me, but he'd be like, you're going down the wrong path, Greg. So you have to have people that you love, trust, and respect, but you also have to trust them enough to listen to them. So he saved me a horrible contract, a horrible scenario, and I don't know how many months and years of agony of sitting in meetings that I would have hated to be in. Yeah, it's important to have that. I mean, and you're doing it on both ends now. I mean, you've got 40, 50 mentors in your life that are doing things like Ben just did for you, and you're doing this now going with younger men, getting them on the path out of prison, off the prison track. Definitely. Yeah. I work with prisoners. I work with businesses. I work with families. I work with people with addiction problems. I mean, I did a Zoom call the other day with a nine-year-old <laughs> for like 45 minutes. It's my, I'm, I'm doing a series with this one particular child because I have a friend whose son is going through some issues. So he's like, Drake, can you help me? I go from K-1 to grad school. Yeah. So... Tell, tell me what you're doing with the prisons now, because I, you know, like I said, you know, we, we hung out a little bit a couple of weeks ago and you were telling me what you're doing with the prisons now. And I think it's phenomenal. And this is, you know, you're doing it South Carolina. You've got a, um, a program and, and you've got your uh, ambassadors of hope, right? The Academy of Hope. Academy of Hope. I'm sorry. Academy of Hope. I'm the ambassador of hope. I need, <laughs> right. I got it. I knew there was an ambassador I'm in there the ambassador somewhere. for the Academy. <laughs> I knew there was an ambassador somewhere. So tell, tell me about that. Cause that, that's a, um, a really beautiful, you know, purpose and mission that you're on with this. Well, for 21 years, I've been home and for like the last 18 of them, I've been traveling the world speaking at London Business School, speaking at Harvard, White House, Congress, top businesses, and all over the world. 30 different countries, from Saudi Arabia to Honduras, from Australia to Germany, Sweden. I'm flying around the world, I got a great life. I'm a top motivational speaker, and life is good. And I was at a conference, and a lady came up to me. She said, listen, I loved your story, 
from prison to Harvard. She said, we have a prison system that's in turmoil right now. Can you come help us? I'm like, lady, I'm busy. Like my friend told me, I don't want to be a warden, so I'm, I'm going to stay on my speaker thing. And she said, no, we have seven dead people and a lot of people injured, and we don't know what to do. Can you come help us? So I stopped what I was doing. I went to South Carolina, and they had 19,000 people on five-month lockdown, 24 hours a day. For five months? Five months straight, they were locked in. They were going to be locked in for who knows how much longer because there was a riot and seven people died. So they didn't have a solution. And for whatever reason, they deemed me the solution. Again, they saw something in me that I didn't see. Mm -hmm. Now it's my turn to live up to the, what they see. So I went into the system, and with my knowledge of having been inside and being the king of nowhere and understanding the pain of what they're feeling, the thinking that's running through their minds, and their real goals, not the make-believe goals, we came in and spoke to those. And for like the last two years, we've been running this program. And in our program, we've gone from seven dead people, 30 wounded, to one fist fight. Wow. And it's not because of anything other than getting the people to see the greatness in themselves is one. And the second thing is, is giving them quality information. So all of my personal mentors, Joe Polish, Dan Sullivan, Jason Flatland, Ben, ben Hardy, um, um, Cameron Harold, uh, I can go down the list. Mm -hmm. I take all of their work, Jim and Mimi do. I go all down the list. Craig Clemens, I take all of their stuff, their books, Sean Stevenson, bless him, he passed. Their books, their trainings, their information, which is the best of the best. Keith Cunningham, the road less stupid. And I bring them into the prison, and all the things that top entrepreneurs are studying, now the guys in prison are studying. So the top entrepreneurs study these guys, and they grow seven-figure businesses. Mm -hmm. So now I got the prisoners studying the same stuff. And guess what they're getting? They're getting million-dollar ideas. They're seeing themselves in another space. It's not the run-of-a-mill, oh, you can go work at Home Depot at a nonprofit. No, you can run a business. There's nothing wrong with Home Depot. There's nothing wrong with a nonprofit. But you can do so much more. They're entrepreneurs. They just always had the wrong product and the wrong sales team. So right. we're teaching them with the best of the best information, not, not the watered down, leftover, I think this will work great for prisoner stuff. Yeah, and you know what I'm getting too from that, Andre, is you delivering that message and bringing – you know, this knowledge in from all these great, you know, men that, that are entrepreneurs that can teach them is, you know, you're the example of it. Because if it was somebody like me coming in and going, hey, you can really do this. They're like, all right, I, yeah, whatever. For you, having been through the system and been one of them and now out and now creating this amazing business and this incredible life that you've got, now you are an example to them of, hey, look, these are the men that mentored me. I'm giving this to you. And, and you are that exemplary figure for them that, hey, look, Andre made it. Andre's the example, man. I can do the same thing. As true as that is, and as much as I agree, I have to disagree with the part that you couldn't go. Because if we go back to when Andre was in prison, I didn't have another ex-prisoner come in. I had an old white Jewish rabbi. Mm -hmm. and two old white nuns. I had a white mm -hmm. priest who met, and I had a white Catholic volunteer who mentored to me and said, you can be great. And they got me to understand my greatness, and they went forward. So you being a middle-aged white guy from Florida, you can go in. If Natan can do it, if Ruth and Kathleen can do it, if Father Martin and Deacon John can do it, if Pat Dempsey can do it, Eric can do it. Well, so, listen, and, and Eric is going to do it. You and I talked about this. 
We're going to prison. We're going to prison. I'm going with you and we're going to go to prison I'm, and we're going to do that. So I appreciate that. My point on this, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bring it back to this is it is to me. Yeah. I would make an impact, but coming from one of them who has proven he did it is, yeah, is incredibly powerful. Oh, incredibly yeah. powerful. You know something? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. One thousand percent. But I will tell you every phenomenon you see in the NBA and NFL Bill Belichick's the greatest coach ever, not just because I'm a Patriot fan, he is, but everybody that plays for him played, at a high, played for a high school coach who taught him the fundamentals. Very few high school coaches ever coach pro, if ever. But they're the early teachers. They're the early teachers. And Kobe Bryant never stepped foot in college. He played at Lord Marion. There was a high school coach that taught him the fundamentals. Michael Jordan got taught the fundamentals in high school. So many other people. So there are coaches at different levels that have the impact that you never hear of. So you know, I don't know Michael Jordan's high school coach's name or Tom Brady's high school coach's name or anybody's high school coach's name, but without them being there first, Bill Belichick, Phil Jackson can do nothing. So somebody has to put the seeds in the ground. Yeah, and what I'm feeling from that too is everybody along the line is important. Course. And and step in and do what you can to mentor these these young people and get them on the right track. As as much as is wonderful for an Andre to show up who's lived it, has been it, and done it. The important part is somebody shows up. If you can't get Andre, don't be like, oh, forget about it. We can't get Dre. As long as you care, you have capacity, you have courage. You're saying you have consistency. You're saying you can be a mentor. If yeah. you have to be the same color or to have the same career, that's great. Capacity, caring, consistency, and courage is what makes a great mentor. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, we have, like I said, I mentioned earlier, the sacred seven. Ours are courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love. I know you're writing them down now. Yeah, I'll send them to you. Commitment, courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love. Same thing. It gets that to you're living from that. Dre, and you're living from the ones that you're talking about, you have these core values, these core ideals that you're living by, and you pass those on, you have a tremendous impact. That's the plan. That's the plan. So tell me what, um, we're going to wrap this up here. And um, what, so two things. First, what do you got coming up next? What, what's, what's on the uh, agenda for you next? What do you got what's going on? Next is the Academy of Hope is based in South Carolina right now. Mm-hmm. We're in discussion with multiple states in counties about, and feds, about branching the program out into different systems in different places. And for me, that's a good thing because we're gonna help more people. Yeah. And that, that's a great thing. So I, I always say when I come on Zooms, if anybody knows a governor, the president, elect or current, or sheriff, um, set it up. I love to sit down with them and have a discussion about how we can bring the Academy Hope to your state, to your system, and actually make a difference and impact that community. So that's growing the Academy of Hope is where we are right now. Okay. And the secondary thing is we're going, the Academy of Hope is going to Detroit. So we're going to, we do inside and outside the wall. So we're about to do a community-based project in Detroit, um, probably starting sometime in the new year. So how do we get to Academy of Hope if, if somebody wants to get involved or they know someone and they can contact you? What's the easiest way for that? Easiest way is um, send me an email. Um, my email is admin at andrenorman.com. You okay. go to my website, andrenorman.com. You just shoot me an email from there and say, hey, Dre, 
I want to connect you to the governor of Florida, the governor of Texas. I want to connect you to the sheriff of. But all I ask is, don't send me on a goose chase. Say, hey, I, I, I get this a lot. Hey, there's a guy in Nebraska. I think you should talk to him. It'd be a great connection. But you don't know him. <laughs> you haven't talked yeah, to him. Yeah, right, right, I right. I yeah. myself. Yeah. Connect me to people that you know. Say, hey, you know the governor of Rhode Island? Call him and say, hey, I got a guy you need to meet. Yeah. You're saying, don't just say, hey, Dre, go meet this person. That's like me telling you, hey, you should go meet LeBron James. You two get along so great. He has a similar story. The likelihood of you making it happen is next to none. Right. But if I called LeBron and they said, hey, LeBron, you need to talk to Eric, that's different. Then you set the meeting up. Like, you're doing that um, with Zach. You're like, hey, mm -hmm. I got these two brothers who are doing this program. You two should connect. But you're connecting to your people and then bringing me in versus just sending me on, hey, you should go right. look. So the personal connection's got to be there. And if you've got someone that's going to go and... Yeah, so we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for the Academy of Hope and AndreNorman.com and make sure they get out there and do that. And like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to going with you to South Carolina and the prisons there and, and whatever I can do to bring value to those men would be phenomenal. So last thing as we wrap, Andre, what's the biggest life lesson that you've learned through this entire journey of yours? The biggest life lesson I learned is everybody counts. And as much as I want people to come to South Carolina prisons and other prisons and be concerned about what I'm concerned about, the people in your life and your community matter. If you live in a rich community, a poor community, a rural community, city, whatever, suburb, those kids count too. There are tons of places right in your community that you can volunteer and engage. Because it's a prep school doesn't mean you can't volunteer. Because it's a public school doesn't mean you can't volunteer. All kids need help. Being 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 15 is a development age. They go through stuff, and they need caring adults with capacity, courage, and consistency who can help them through. So don't jump over the kids in your neighborhood to rush downtown. Help grow the kids in your neighborhood to be solid, good people, and then you can go forward. Somebody asked me one time in college, Andre, I want to I give back. What should I do? I told him, finish your college career, get a degree, Open up a company like Bill Gates did, grow that company to like a gazillion billion dollars, and set up a foundation and go help the world. Where would we be if Bill Gates dropped out of college to open up a soup kitchen? <laughs> Bill Gates stayed yeah. in college, started his business, made I don't know how many billions of dollars, set up his foundation with his wife, and that's what he does now. He convinces other super wealthy people to give to him, and he does great works around the world. I am so happy with the Bill Gates method. Oprah went for the same thing. She built this massive company, set it aside. Now she goes around the world helping people. Take the Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey model. Go become the greatest you you can, and then step out of that and go help people. Don't be, poor people will be here for, their, for eternity. There will always be need, but what we won't always have is another Bill Gates. We won't always have another open winfrey. We need you to be as great as you can, then bring that to bear. Yeah, and I, what I love is what you said earlier in our talk here about nobody does it alone, right? You found that nobody does it alone. You've got these people throughout your whole life, and so it's be one of those people. Be the greatest you you can be. Yeah. And then share that. And share, right, and share that is the important thing. So, Andre, really, man, I appreciate you sharing yours with, with us today. Um, just an amazing, amazing story. And um, again, Academy of Hope, any way we can help guys, if you can help Andre in any way, you've got these great connections, make sure to get a hold of him. And um, 
Andre, you know, so we're going to uh, keep together because I um, appreciate everything that you're doing. It's just phenomenal. Just amazing when, stuff. If people have any kinds of trainings or books, I mean, we have a platform where everything's technical and technology. Mm -hmm. We can take your training for the seven and put it in the PDF, drop it on the platform, hit a button, 500,000 prisoners can actually access the training. If we have a book, we can flip it into an EPUB, the e-version, like the Kindle version, hit a button, 500,000 people can have it. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to be supportive without even leaving your home. That's such a powerful statement that Andre ended on there. You don't have to leave your house to contribute. You don't have to leave your house to have impact. And anything that you can do, do it because it will inspire, it will motivate, and it will impact the lives of others. And when you meet a man like Andre, a man who has turned his life around and is now impacting the lives of others, you know that there are thousands more men just like him who are sitting in our prison system right now who just need a hand to turn their lives around so that they can have a positive impact as well. So as we said at the end of this, live your greatness, right? Andre says, live your greatness. Do what you can do. Do what you're best at and then give back. Bring others up especially others who are in bad or desperate situations. And guys, that is the definition of the hero archetype in the title of this show. Live your greatness as the king. Be the king of your kingdom. Be the king of your life and then share that greatness with others because that's when you become the hero. The hero is the man who does for others and is there for others. The man who shares his greatness with other people and lifts them inspires them and guides them to their own greatness. So I really, really want to thank Andre Norman for joining us today, for being real and being honest and telling us the story of his journey. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. So I'll talk to you next time. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.